as Jared said, we start Holy Week this week to get us all the way to Easter next Sunday. Um, my prayer for us is that we would see every Sunday as Easter Sunday, because we uh, don't just serve a risen Savior on Easter Sunday, but we serve a risen Savior every day of the week. Amen? As Jared said, in light of uh, being Holy Week and starting Holy Week today, we will take a break from our passage in our series, The Good Fight in First Timothy, and we'll look uh, this week at John chapter 12, and then next week at Easter, we'll look at John chapter 20. I would encourage all of you to invite someone. Uh, they say that Easter is the easiest time of the year to invite a friend, a family member to church. It's the most uh, unthreatening uh, time to invite someone to church is Easter Sunday. So I'd encourage each of you to invite someone to church next Sunday to hear about our risen Savior and what He has come to accomplish. Before I get into this morning's message, uh, I'm sure I'll hear about this later, uh, but Jan, if you'll please stand up, um, so, just so I can recognize you in front of our church body. Um, this is when you don't tell people what you're doing, so I'll hear about this later. Uh, for y'all that don't know, Jan has been in school, and this year she was recognized as the Female Student of the Year at MTSU, so let's give her a round of applause for that. Thank you very much. You can pay me back next week. Uh, she told me this morning when she walked in, I gave her a standing ovation. And she said, it's because of the prayers of faithful people uh, at Powell's Chapel. And so she wanted to thank each of you for praying for her during this, uh, this, this season of her life as she's back at school. So again, congratulations. And um, your mom bragged about you this morning. I told your mom, keep on bragging. Uh, let's rent a billboard out and put, put it all over Murfreesboro. So congratulations. Um, again, that's probably not the wisest thing as a pastor to do, to do that with people not knowing, but uh, we do want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. So. <laughs> Amen. God is good and faithful. We, we serve a God that redeems all things. Amen? Let me pray and then we'll get into the message this morning. God, you continue to reveal yourself to us time and time again. And we want to celebrate that we do serve a risen King that is out for redemption of all mankind. We see that just in this story this morning and uh, Jan's life, and so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for her and her dedication to you and her studies and uh, to get to witness your faithfulness in her life. God, I pray for us this morning as we engage your word, uh, that it wouldn't just be something that would flood our minds, but it would be something that would transform our hearts. So lead us this morning, guide us. I pray that you get all the honor and glory. Amen. I, I need to move something. I keep stepping on this piece of paper. I'm like, that would be a huge distraction for me throughout the service. Sorry about that. Let's turn to John chapter 12. And we'll be at, in verses 12 through 29. As we start this morning, I want to ask this question. Has anyone ever had expectations? Am I the, okay, three of us, that's good to know. And how many of us have these expectations on life that just haven't come to pass? You know, with expectations comes a lot of emotions. 
And with expectations often comes a lot of demands, and with expectations that are unmet come a lot of anger and frustration and confusion. Is that true for anyone else? You know, I remember for me and Jenny, we had an expectation that we would get married, and then we had this expectation that we would have kids when we desired to have kids. And uh, we began the process of talking and planning a family, and we had this expectation that God was going to meet us, and God was going to give us a, a kid, you know, right when we wanted. And it was about a two-year-long period of our expectations not being met by God. And I'm sure all of us in the room could come up here and have those expectations. And I want to look today in this passage, I think it's one of the passages that might be most, one of the most misunderstood passages about Holy Week. Because it has everything to do with expectations. We're going to see three different peoples in this story that had expectation of who Jesus is and what Jesus was going to do. And so this morning as you sit here, I want you to say to yourself, who do I most identify with in this story with expectations? Am I the crowd? Am I the disciples? Or am I the Pharisees? Each of these three groups had these expectations. Let me just give you a little bit of backdrop into uh, this portion of Scripture in John chapter 12. Jesus had been being with His disciples for about three years and He had been telling His disciples all that He had wanted to come and what He was going to do. And then in John chapter 11, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Jesus raises one of His dear friends from death. He raises from the grave and John 11, verse 11.35 says this, that Jesus wept over His friend. Jesus knew what He was going to do with Lazarus before He did it, but yet we see these emotions in Jesus. This would be the last public miracle that Jesus would ever perform. That's not to say He didn't do other miracles. Yes, He did in a few days. We will see that He put an ear back on the side of someone's head. So there's other miracles that He did, but this was the last public miracle that Jesus would ever perform in front of people. And so as you know, throughout the Gospels, this crowd of people began to follow Jesus wherever Jesus would go. Because they had this expectation about who Jesus was and what Jesus could do and what Jesus was going to do for them. Remember, their expectation was that they would bring their friends to Jesus and their expectation was that Jesus was going to heal them. Or Jesus was going to cure their disease. Or Jesus was going to raise people from the dead. And so the first crowd that we see, the first party in this story, is the curious crowd. The curious crowd had this expectation of who Jesus was and what He was going to do. It says this in verses 12-13, through 13, and then I'll skip down and read verse 17 and 18. Says this the next day. This is after the resurrection of Lazarus. The large crowd had come to the feast. Circle that word feast in your Bibles. This was about the Passover. The, the greatest holiday, the greatest celebration that Jewish people were to celebrate was the Passover. If you remember back in Exodus, the Exodus story is the, the people of God being liberated from the slavery, from the Pharaoh. And so, on the 10th command, the 10th plague was the Passover. 
That God would send the angel to pass over the, the people of Israel to save the people of Israel and wipe out all of the firstborn uh, of the, the Egyptians. And so from that day on, every year, the people of God would celebrate Passover as a reminder of their deliverance from bondage and slavery. They had an expectation. And that's who was coming that day to this, uh, to this gathering. It's estimated that about 2.5 million people that day were making their journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, Jerusalem's not a very big city, right, Roger? It's not a huge city. So if you think about 2.5 million people walking together into Jerusalem to celebrate the, the, the Passover or the feast, that's a lot of people. Well, part of that crowd was the crowd that had been following Jesus. We see that in verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness about Him. And the reason why the crowd went with Him or met with Him was that they had heard what He had done. You see, their expectation was that Jesus was going to continue to do miracles. They also had another expectation about Jesus. They had an expectation that Jesus was going to be their king, to deliver them the same way that God had to deliver them from bondage and slavery, that this Jesus would deliver them from bondage and slavery. You see, they, they had this expectation about who and what Jesus was. You see, this people that were celebrating the Passover, they knew the Old Testament, they knew it well. They knew that the Old Testament was a prelude to all of the Messiah and what He was going to come and do. And so they began to form these expectations. That this Jesus was going to come and He was going to be this conquering King. That He was going to come and conquer the Romans. That He was going to give the death blow to the Romans. And giving the death blow to the Romans was going to liberate them. And they would be free forever and ever and ever. And so when we look at this passage, we see that they came. And they came to celebrate the Passover. But they had this expectation about Jesus. That He was going to be the conquering King. And just on a side note, if there was 2.5 million people going up to the Passover, think about how many lambs were in that crowd that day. The estimation is about 250,000 lambs. I believe that this is where Jesus when he goes in Luke chapter, when he's in Luke chapter 19, he overlooks the city. And I think he overlooks the city and sees the 2.5 million people, but I also think he sees the 250,000 lambs that were going to be sacrificed. And he begins to weep over the city. I think he begins to weep over the city because he, they don't realize that their expectation is not going to be met the way that they desire it to be met. And I wonder, church, for us this morning, how many of us have placed expectations on Christ that have not been met? We're going to get to the next two in a moment. And so they come and they begin to pave the way for Jesus. And so they took the branches of palms from the palm trees and they begin to wave them as they meet Him. And they begin to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is who who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, when we think of Palm Sunday, that's what we think of. We think of the palms. 
That's what we come and celebrate. But for them that day, when they came with the palm trees, they were not coming the way that we think they were coming. They were not coming as heralding Him as the Savior of the world, but they were coming to herald Him as the conquering King. You see, part of the backdrop to them waving the palm trees was was a hundred years prior to that. There was a man that came along that delivered the people. And they delivered the temple back to the people. The temple was in bondage and slavery. And so the people of God could not a hundred years ago go worship God in the temple. That was the only place that the people of God could worship was in the temple. And so this man came and he took back the temple for the people of God. And it says in the story, his name is, uh, that's where we get the, 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 the stories of the Maccabees. If you ever wonder what, it's in the Catholic Bible, but there was a man by the last name of Maccabees that liberated the people. And so they would then, when he came back from liberating the people, they began to wave these palm trees and these palm branches as a celebratory act of their deliverance. And so when the people of God in this story begin to wave the palm trees, they're waving it to say, here comes our conquering king. Our expectation is he will set us free. But then Jesus does something to their curiosity. He does something and meets their expectations dead in the face. They begin to say this, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what the word Hosanna means? Anyone? It means save us now. They're crying out to Jesus, save us now. And when they say save, they're not talking about the eternal destiny. They're thinking, talking about their here and now. Save us from the torment of Rome that we're under. Save us now. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm chapter 118. The halal. They would sing this every morning in the temple. They would sing this psalm over and over and over. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They're preparing their hearts for the coming King and yet their curiosity has it all backwards. Has it all distorted. And then Jesus confronts their curiosity. Jesus confronts their expectation. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Circle the word donkey in your Bible. Like we think, oh, cute. Jesus jumps up on top of a donkey. That's not what a king would ever ride on, was a donkey. Kings would ride on majestic steers. Just these amazing, these amazing horses that were head and shoulders above all other horses. And yet their conquering king is now jumping on a donkey. Now their donkeys weren't like our donkeys. It said that most of the donkeys in that day, that grown men had to bend their knees so their feet didn't drag on the, the ground. It'd be like a miniature pony. You know, right up the street, you'll see those miniature ponies. It'd be like if I brought that miniature pony in and started riding it up and down. That would look ridiculous. But here's Jesus jumping on a miniature pony and saying, hey, I'm the king, but I've come to do it a lot different than you think. A lot different. And he rides that donkey all the way into the city. He didn't have to ride the donkey. He had walked most of the journey already. But he was sending a message to their curiosity. I've come to do something that you have no idea what I've come to do. What he came to do in riding the donkey was to fulfill the Old Testament. 
Zechariah 9.9, where it talks about that there would be the conquering king who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So he didn't have to ride it. But he knew in riding the donkey, he would fulfill the promise of the Old Testament about the Messiah who was to come. And then we have the crowd being confronted about what they believe to be true about Jesus. And I just wonder in that crowd, as he rode that small donkey, the murmurs that must have happened in the crowd. We're going to see in a few days what happens to the crowd. This is the same crowd that day on Palm Sunday that's saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Hosanna, blessed be the name of He who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, on Friday, you know what that same crowd is doing? Because Jesus had not come and met their expectations, they turn on Him like a dime. And they start crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him. From one moment they're saying, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And within less than a week, they're screaming, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. Because Jesus had not come and met their expectations. And I wonder, church, for us, how we're like the crowd. that We've put all these expectations on Jesus. And He hasn't met our expectations. And when He doesn't meet our expectations, we turn on Him the same way the crowd turned on Him. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty. I I wait and I wait and I have this hope and I have this longing that God's going to do and God's going to meet my expectations just the way that I want Him to do. And then the moment that those expectations are not met, then I might not externally turn on Him, but my heart turns on Him. And the way my heart turns on Him is to say, then fine, I'll do it on my own. Jesus is going to continue. Continue to press into the people and their expectations. Well, then His disciples are seeing all this. And we have the confused disciples. We have the curiosity of the crowd that's following Him so that they see more of miracles. And then all of a sudden it says this in verse 16, the disciples did not understand these things at first. You've got to remember, the disciples have been walking with Jesus for three solid years. And every moment within the disciples' life with Jesus, Jesus has been teaching them that this was the day that was going to come. It was no mystery to the disciples. It wasn't like that day the disciples saw this conquering king coming, and and then Jesus begins to say, hey, this is the reason I've been coming. No, from day one, Jesus has been telling his disciples, I'm coming to liberate the people. I'm coming to bring salvation to the people. And then all of a sudden, things begin to transpire in a way that the disciples didn't realize. Because they had this expectation of who Jesus was and how Jesus was going to liberate them from sin and bondage. And it wasn't riding in on a donkey. And it wasn't going to go to Golgotha to die. And it wasn't, you fill in the blank, that wasn't what the expectations of the disciples had for Jesus. Peter says to Jesus a few 
moments later, when they're washing his feet, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And what does Jesus say? It, Jesus comes and says, I have to do this for you. I've got to wash your feet. I've got to prepare you for what's coming. And Jesus says to Peter, this must be fulfilled. And then what does Peter say to Jesus? Don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. He's still confused. He's still confused. And then a little while later, Jesus says, hey, you're going to deny me three times. And what does Peter say? No, I'll never do that. He's still confused. Because of his unmet expectations of the Messiah. I wonder for us, church, how we're like Peter or the disciples. We know the truth. We know what the Word says. We, we know that Jesus says there's going to be much suffering in this world. But then what are we so confused for when the suffering happens? Because we have an expectation that God's promises are going to happen the way we want them to happen, not the way He plans them to happen. Like We all know suffering's going to come. But man, do we not want to put boundaries around the suffering that God allows for us to happen? And then we get so so confused when God's plan doesn't equal our plan. Am I the only one in the room? Like when we say, hey, well, suffering's going to come, and then when cancer comes, we're confused by the cancer. Because that's not how we would do it, is it? Anyone in the room would do that? But God says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. But the Word of God is true always. You don't think Job was confused that day, do you? He's the most righteous man in the land. And in a moment, everything is taken from Job. And yet Job can say with confidence, God is still supreme. And I just wonder for me in my own life, in my own heart, when the chaos hits, can I still say that God is sovereign and in control? See, that's not true for the disciples that day. They're walking into Jerusalem. They're confused about what's happening, what's going on. They stay confused. They stay confused all the way. It says to us, all the way to His glorification. That's 40 days after the resurrection, they're still confused. It says in Matthew that some, when they saw Jesus, some still doubted Jesus after His resurrection. The disciples still doubted. They're still confused. The confusion is released at His glorification. When He ascends back to the Father, the light bulbs finally come on. It's like those two men that are walking away from Jerusalem. Those two confused disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that. that like They're leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving the resurrection. They're leaving everything behind. And they're confused about what had just taken place. And then Jesus shows up with them in Luke. And says to them, well, what are y'all talking about? And then Jesus walks them through the entire Old Testament and reveals to them how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, when their eyes see a glorified king, they understand and they beg him to stay. I just wonder, church, for us, in our confusion, have we misplaced who Christ the King is? 
And then the last one is found in verse 19. And I pray that this would not be any of us in the room this morning. It says, and so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And we'll see, and we've seen this about the Pharisees from day one as well, when Jesus shows up and begins to minister to the people of God. We have a condemning world, a condemning, the condemning Pharisees. You see, their expectations of Jesus was that Jesus would come and Jesus would applaud them for all that they had been doing, that Jesus would give them accolades for adding on to the Old Testament, and that Jesus would praise them for what He did. In the moment that Jesus comes and says, hey, all this that you've been teaching is off and it's wrong. That's what He does in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He's addressing the Pharisees on the Sermon on the Mount. Because he says over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, you have said this or you have heard this, but I come and I say this to you. You see, the Pharisees' expectations about who the conquering king would be would be a man that was legalistic. And through his legalism, he would save the world. Well, Jesus doesn't come to save the world through legalism. Jesus comes to save the world through relationship. And legalism will never equal relationship. And so Jesus is confronting their expectations of their legalism. If we can just do it all right, if we can just do everything, cross our, cross our T's and dot our I's and live a perfect life, then we'll have holiness. And Jesus says, it's not about your actions, it's about your heart. And the moment Jesus begins to talk to the Pharisees about their heart, they want to kill Him. Because Jesus doesn't care about our actions. Jesus cares about where those actions come from, and it's the heart. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would not have people in here that are being like the Pharisees, that are condemning Jesus. But we see it all around, do we not? It's everywhere. People condemning who Jesus is and says, He is. They begin to have this moment that they're freaking out. Look, the world has gone after him. That thing that we've been trying to stop and trying to stop and trying to stop since Jesus showed up was that he would not gain disciples, that he would not begin to change the system that we've set in place. But they have this moment at the, 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 the entry into Jerusalem and they say, man, everything we've been trying to do is not working. And then from that day on, they put on the pressure. To kill Jesus. They had been wanting to kill Jesus. But if you go back through the Gospels, through Holy Week, that's when they really ratcheted up. Because they began to see, man, everything is backfiring. The world is going after him. The world is being transformed by this man. The world wants to know more about this man. And they say to one another, this cannot happen. We must kill him. It's the condemnation of the Pharisees that killed him. But here's the beauty of it all. That was in the will of God. See, the Pharisees that day, though they're condemning Jesus and they go to, to kill Him, they think they've won. The Pharisees on Good Friday think they've won. 
But there's a God in heaven that back in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 said, no, no, I'm going to send a king and the plan of my king to be sent is to redeem the world and the way he's going to redeem the world is through his death. And so this must take place. The Pharisees must condemn the conquering king so that he can conquer the world and set everyone free. So I asked the question this morning, who are you in this story? Are you the crowd that's curious? Do you just keep gathering on Sundays and Wednesdays? Hoping to see some dog and pony show? Now what will God do today? What miracle is He going to perform today? But there's no heart transformation. It's all about your entertainment. So that was what was going on in the hearts of those men and women in the joyful triumphy of Christ into Jerusalem. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to talk about what Jesus was doing. They didn't want to talk about what Jesus had come to do for them. Or were we like the disciples? Man, we put some expectations in Jesus. This is just blowing my mind. I don't get it. Or were we like the Pharisees? Are we still condemning the conquering king? So here's the beauty of it all. And here's the promise of this passage. Though we have expectations on Christ, the promise is this. Christ did not come ever, not one time, to meet your expectations. If you think Jesus came to meet your expectations, you will always be sadly mistaken. He came to meet one person's expectations. That was His Father. His only expectation, he says it in the great high priestly prayer in John 17, I've come to do the will of the Father. His expectation is that I would come and that I would die to redeem a lost people. That is the expectation I've come to meet. I've never come to meet your expectation. So all the expectations you put on me, I'm not going to come and fulfill those expectations. And if you put expectations on me, you will always feel lonely. You will always feel afraid. You will always, you fill in the blank. Because Christ did not come to meet your expectations about who He is for you, but He came to accomplish the will of the Father, the only expectation that matters. So I ask this question. How will you respond to that King today? Will you surrender your life wholly to Him today? Because here's the great promise. And turn with me. The Revelation chapter 19. We do have a king that's coming. And here's the scary part about the king that's coming. He ain't riding on no donkey. His feet ain't dragging on the floor. We got a king that's coming. He's going to come on a steed. He's going to be the white rider. And he's going to come. And he's going to call all to himself. And he will conquer everything. Is what it says in Revelation chapter 19. Verse 11, he says, Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes wars. That's the king that's coming back. He ain't on a donkey. It says again and again and again, he's the God Almighty, and in his wrath he will come. And he's going to set those free. Because of His goodness, His kindness, His faithfulness. 
But here's the other part that's so scary. If you do not know Christ, He's coming to judge you. And that is scary. He will stand before the conquering king as he's on that horse, faithful and true, and we will give an account for all that we've done. It won't matter about your expectations that day. You can't say before that king on that horse, oh, but I thought and I wished and I hoped for this. Because all that's going to matter is that you placed your trust and faith into the King of kings and the Lord of lords that said, I've come to set you free. His only expectation is that we would obey Him. So are you and am I living a life that says, okay, God, okay, Christ, you're not going to conform to me, but I must conform to you. And conforming to Him is saying exactly what He says, that we would love Him and obey Him. And out of loving Him and obeying Him will show the, the transformation of our hearts. So we won't leave that day curious like the crowd. We won't leave that day confused like the disciples. And we definitely won't leave that day condemning like the Pharisees. But we will live that day conformed into the image of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who rides on the white horse to set us free. Can we praise God and say with all of our hearts this morning, Hosanna, 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 save us now. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. God, the truth is that You have sent the conquering King. He will return one day on a white horse. We will say He is faithful and we will say that He was true and we will say that in His right hand He holds the Word of God. And we will see and we will experience the freedom that comes through the conquering King. But it only comes through our submission and our surrender that He is who He says He is. God, I pray for any of us in this room myself included, if we placed expectations on Jesus. That God, we'd confess that now. And we would say with all of our hearts, God, Your ways are not our ways and Your thoughts are not our thoughts. So God, all the miracles that You do, all the suffering that takes place, and all the fulfillment that happens is for Your glory and for our good. So God, I pray that we wouldn't be confused when suffering happens. And God, I pray that we wouldn't be people like the crowd that just want to be strictly entertained by You. And I pray that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees waiting to condemn You. But we would be a people that would surrender our lives over to You today. And that we would today redeem